stand for the reading of Scripture. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, where Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful for the way you have sustained us over this past year and for the moments where we've experienced your presence in a very special way, whether that was alone or in fellowship. And we look forward to more of that. It is exciting to live in a world where you're at work, where you're up to something, something good. And help us to uh, live expectantly in light of that reality as we look ahead. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so 2017 was quite a dramatic year, punctuated by mass shootings, terrorism, hurricanes, harassment scandals, by now, our emotional shock absorbers are just about worn out. In the US, the Trump White House played out like The Apprentice as more and more government officials were fired. We don't know if we're watching Survivor or The Gong Show. One com commentator recommended a new policy for the Donald. Tweet unto others as you would have them tweet unto you. And whereas the American president is politically awkward, clumsy, and accident-prone, our Canadian prime minister is smooth, charming, popular, progressive, and far more dangerous. We sing with hope in our hearts, God keep our land, glorious and free. But it almost looks like our prime minister has other ideas. His disparaging comments about evangelicals and intolerant demands for conformity are only the beginning of what could become an ideological purge of those who are not on the right side of history. Our religious freedoms may have an expiry date. But God is at work. Meanwhile, in Africa, crowds numbering over a million are gathering to hear the gospel. Godwin, coming back from Nigeria, tells us there are churches in Lagos where 50,000 believers gather on a Sunday to hear the gospel. God is doing something. 
As Dickens observed, it is the best of times, it is the worst of times. God is at work, and obviously so is Satan. In fact, he's a workaholic. I doubt that he's taken a day off since the crucifixion. I'm guessing on that day, the prince and power of the air must have been soaring triumphantly over his domain to celebrate his brief victory. Thrilled that though light came into the world, men preferred darkness because their deeds were evil. Of course, three days later, he suffered a crushing defeat from which he has never been able to recover or never will. He was utterly humiliated, but not demoralized. Although for him the war is lost, he continues to fight on and is prepared to contest every inch. The book of Revelation even issues the ultimate, ultimate terrorist threat alert. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. That could explain some of the things that we're seeing now. After 150 years, we live in a culture that has no reverence for God, where the name of Jesus is considered offensive, and where it is perfectly legal to break all 10 of the commandments. Happy birthday, Canada. Now, most of this happened gradually. The rate of decay has taken decades, but now it's beginning to accelerate. So how do we cope with all of this? As I was reflecting on the state of the Union or Confederation, I was drawn to a passage of scripture here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul was writing from a dungeon in the city of Rome where he was on death row at the mercy of a government that was increasingly hostile to Christianity. But Paul was neither demoralized nor defeated. In verse one of Philippians chapter three, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Although he was in the worst trouble of his life, Paul was not panicking. He wasn't even afraid. He was rejoicing. And he was also reflective. He thought about the events of his past and then turned his attention to the future, which is what we do whenever we tend to enter a new year. Paul's perspective here, I think, is very relevant and meaningful as we proceed on the road ahead, a road that seems to be getting more treacherous for those who follow Jesus. First of all, Paul focuses on the past in verses four to six. He says, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That was Paul's life. He was a purpose-driven man. And when he did something, he did it with all his heart, especially when, he, when it came to religion. Paul became a Pharisee, but he wasn't like most of the others because many of the Pharisees found legalism too demanding. So they would cheat. They would take shortcuts when no one was looking. In the public eye, the Pharisees put on a good show, Academy Award caliber, but their righteousness was only skin deep. 
although their self-righteousness went right to the bone. To borrow Mark Twain's phrase, they were good people in the worst sense of the word. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. But Paul was not like that. He was not a hypocrite. He says, as for legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. This was legalism on steroids. He was the Tom Brady of the religious establishment, the MVP, a Pharisee of the Pharisees 2.0. And he was willing to even defend his faith by any means necessary. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. It was a jihad. Paul had no choice. He had to protect the purity of his religion from this contamination of this sinister group that had infected his land. In fact, he was willing to take this to the ends of the earth. Paul would do anything for God. But as it turned out, he wasn't even on the same page with God. In fact, the Pharisees were holding the script upside down. Paul was as sincere as it is possible to be but he was sincerely wrong. So he says in verse seven, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In this paragraph, Paul focuses on the present. Notice the word now, I now consider a loss. Something's happened to me now that has made a difference. He was a different man. He had changed his mind. What? Are you serious? How is that possible? People like that don't change. They have too much to lose. Paul's whole life was about pursuing legalistic righteousness. He strained toward that goal with all his strength. I mean, just think of the time he spent, of the effort it took. He had built up quite a reputation. Many were following his example. He was surrounded by people who encouraged him and enabled him. How could he give all of that up? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For Christ? Are you kidding? Christ was the problem. It was his followers that were corrupting our religion. It was blasphemy. The teachings of Christ were more dangerous than terrorism. Paul was on red alert. What happened? Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's gotta be about the most radical change possible. Paul went from doing everything humanly possible to achieve salvation by his own righteousness to realizing he couldn't do anything to save himself. From everything to nothing, you can't change any more than that. So how did it happen? Verse 10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death 
and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. How did this happen? Well, notice a word he uses twice in these verses. Resurrection. That's what changed Paul's life. That's what made him realize that all of his religious effort was as meaningless as chasing the wind. Like everyone else, Paul thought Jesus was dead. He was crucified. He was butchered by the Roman executioners. No one survives that. But then there were these rumors, these alternative facts that Jesus was alive again, resurrected from the tomb. And that's when Paul lost it. He got so mad, he wanted to kill anyone spreading this fake news. This is going to stop now. But on the way to doomsday, this terminator met Jesus. Right outside the city of Damascus, he encountered the risen Lord. And in that moment, he found out everything he had believed was wrong. And everything changed. Only the resurrection can produce a change like that. In fact, Paul was now even more passionate about Jesus than he had previously been about religion. To Paul, Jesus was everything. And it wasn't easy because he suffered for it. The Pharisees turned against this traitor and started to torment him at every opportunity. That's why he was in a, on death row in a Roman dungeon. But Paul at least had the satisfaction of knowing that his life had made a lasting impact because God had used him to establish churches all over the Roman Empire. He was the point man in a movement that was turning the world upside down. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul, you're in the home stretch. You can start to coast. Bring it in easy. Others will continue the good work until it's complete. For a retirement gift, we'd like to give you this lovely sundial. Well, not Paul. He wasn't ready to power down. In fact, Paul was focusing on the future. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. After a few decades, there is a tendency among Christians to kind of gear down. It's not really stagnation, it's more about consolidation. We seem more concerned with our church or our friends, or our comfort zone, or our music, or our memories. Paul wasn't like that. He displayed a divine dissatisfaction with his current level of spirituality. He's saying, I have not obtained all this, so I have to press on. A healthy dissatisfaction is essential to progress. It's only because people got dissatisfied eating locusts and honey that we now have Pizza Hut and KFC. Or maybe that's a bad example. That's not necessarily progress, but you know what I mean. Paul was not ready to slow down. He wasn't going to start coasting. I will press on to take hold of that for which God took hold of me. 
Now eventually he would write in 2 Timothy, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, but not yet. It was too soon for that. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. One thing I do. You know, when you're younger, there's so many things that you're fascinated with, so many things you want to do and accomplish. Some of us have a bucket list of 30 things we want to do yet. Paul says, one thing I want to do. There's only one thing that matters. There's only one thing that counts. When you're running a race, it's called being in a zone. You're not thinking about other things. You're not checking your emails. You're not seeing if you've got any matches on eHarmony. You block out all distractions. You block out everything else. This one thing I do. There are a lot of part-time Christians who like to dabble in their faith. It's like they're auditing. It's not really for credit. It's like the actress who said, I'm interested in everything a little bit. So we're, we're interested in a little bit of church, a little bit of the club, the party scene, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of indulgence, a little bit of revenge, everything just a little bit. These are a few of my favorite things. Paul said, this one thing I do. It reminds me of a cartoon in which a young man was in a card shop and he asked the clerk for a special valentine. And the clerk says, I think I got just the thing. How about this one? It says, to the only girl I ever loved. Yes, that's perfect. I'll take four of them. (laughs) Wow, are we like that? Paul had a one-track mind, this one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind. What do you see when you look back? Well, often we see our sins. And it makes us wonder if we'll ever change. Or we remember our sorrows, our disappointments. And we wonder if we'll ever really be able to trust God again. When we look back, we see the good old days. And we'll wonder if it'll ever be like that again. David Jeremiah writes this. You can remember your success if it makes you feel grateful. But if it makes you proud, you should forget it. If you look at your failures as opportunities to grow, it's all right to remember them. But if they fill you with despair and defeat, forget them. We may allow our past failures to teach us, but not to terrorize us. Our memories of the past are a series of canceled checks. They have no purchasing power, no current value. Satan used to bug me a lot about my past until I got some really good advice from someone who said, the next time Satan reminds you about your past, remind him about his future. Game, set, and match. To make the most of 2018, 
What do you need to forget? What do you need to let go of and leave behind? Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. When the Spanish conquistadors landed in Veracruz, their commander Cortez assembled his soldiers on the beach and he made them stand at attention and look out at the ocean. And there they stood and watched as their ships were set on fire and burned. That's when they realized there was no going back. There would be no deserters. Now they would be able to give their undivided attention to the prize for which they've come. Forgetting what is behind. Jesus said in Luke 9:62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Nostalgia can become a narcotic. Some Christians spend most of their time admiring the plowing done in previous generations, recalling the bumper crops of past harvests. And I'm like that because I really miss the the good old days. Did you know, know that once upon a time in Canada, Jesus was popular, Christianity was cool, and some, even some big names were getting saved. I wish it was still like that, but it's not. That was a different world. So what we need to focus on is the opportunities we have now in this generation. And they are absolutely amazing, especially with immigrants and internationals. It's been so refreshing to meet people from other cultures who are not allergic to the gospel yet. They've got an open mind, they're curious, they ask questions. That's where the action is. And I love it. We need to focus on the opportunities that we have now. One of the lessons I've learned from all of the uh, conferences I've attended on the persecuted church is that whenever opposition increases and tribulation begins, that it often ignites a revival. There are unprecedented opportunities to reach people with the gospel. I wonder if we would be willing to suffer for that. Let us forget what is behind, what happened in the past, that we can concentrate on what is ahead. Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us who are mature should take a view of such things and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. But let us live up to what we have already attained. If we think differently about some of these things, we can set that aside and let God make that clear in his own time. But let's focus on the one thing we can all agree on. We're in this for Jesus Christ, this one thing we do. So let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul was concerned that the believers were living below their potential. 
And it was such a waste. Imagine if uh, instead of competing at the Olympics, Usain Bolt was working as an usher in the stadium. What a waste. Imagine instead of becoming CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates had spent his career at the tech support geek squad desk at Best Buy. What a waste. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Are we living up to our potential as believers? As a church family? None of us have ever exceeded our potential. And we haven't even reached our personal best yet. When I think back, God made this very clear to me. By the beginning of 2010, I thought I was done, finished, game over. My best years were gone. I had become irrelevant and obsolete. And I was preparing to just stop preaching altogether and just blend into the background. But it was premature because God began to open up some new opportunities. And in 2012, I found out the most amazing thing. God still wanted to use me. And since then, I have absolutely never loved preaching more. These are my best years, and I'm pressing on. So what about you? You think your best is yet to come? What about our church? In 2018, we celebrate 50 years in this building. What a legacy. But you know, our best years are not in the back there somewhere. They're up ahead. That's where they are. So we need to discipline ourselves to Forget what is behind so we can press on to what lies ahead. On the road that has become increasingly treacherous for people who follow Jesus Christ. But although the opposition will increase, so will our opportunities because God is up to something. 2018, it's going to be very interesting and it's going to be very exciting because God is at work. We have nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and everything to gain as long as we keep in mind there's one thing that we have to do. Let's pray. Lord, your faithfulness this past year has truly been amazing. We've had some testimonies about that and uh, we just thank you for even many of the others who have experienced that too, who haven't had a chance to necessarily share that, but we could be sitting here for hours hearing all the uh, examples of how you you have worked in our lives and our families' lives. And now we kind of let that go because there's even greater things up ahead. And we want to focus 
on the future. A new year filled with all kinds of opportunities. A new year to become more aware of how you want to use us because you're not finished with us. We're not obsolete. We're not irrelevant. We have so much to offer, every single one of us. And we just thank you for how that's going to play out in the months ahead. So we just want to commit ourselves to focusing on the one thing that we need to do. This is all about Jesus. It's all about following him. We thank you that we can do that together as a church. We pray this in his name. Amen.